As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me this evening to review the USA's 1-0 win over Canada is a man who always looks good partnering, partnering Daryl DK up top. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <laughs> oh, all, all the many games that Daryl DK yep. and I have played together um, from our childhood all the way. I, I actually was on the field tonight. That wasn't Jesse's artist. That was me. Taylor, that's yep. a very astute observation. We do work together really, <laughs> really well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I, as far as I know, you and Daryl DK have never lost a game. I, 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 we'll nope. see if that changes, Joe, but for now, it's, <laughs> it's a strong record. Uh, a strong three wins from three for the United States, or at least a semi-strong uh, three wins from three. The U.S. with a 1-0 win over Canada in their final group stage game of the Gold Cup. The opener coming 20 seconds into the game when Shaq Moore got on the end of a Sebastian Legette low pass into the box. And then the game was good but disjointed, and then it was confusing, and then it was kind of bad. But in the end, a win is a win. Joe, we have done our quick take hot take. People can go back and listen to that in the feed. There's no music. It's just raw emotion. It's not really since <laughs> neither of us is uh, really capable of like going off on long, long rants. <laughs> just long, long intros. But the purpose of that type of show is to get our thoughts sort of verbalized, get the emotions out, see where we stand, see how we feel, then review, and then kind of come back together and discuss uh, like what we were right on, what we were wrong on, some things we learned, some things we didn't learn. Uh, Joe, the basic question to start, are you feeling better or worse since last we spoke? I'm feeling a little bit better. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit more positive after going through and watching, especially that second half, in a little bit more focus. I was a little bit more focused watching it, knowing the result. It's easier to dive in a little deeper. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why I'm a little bit more optimistic is the U.S. didn't really allow that many big chances. And we kind of talked about that in the quick take, hot take. But the U.S. certainly sat behind the ball way too much, and they were too reactive instead of actually trying to be the protagonist of that second half where they tried, but it didn't work. And I do think the one silver lining there that I could find is some of the XG numbers. And this kind of lines up with the eye test, but Canada had 0.76 expected goals in this game on 14 shots. The U.S. had 0.9, so that's 0.14 higher than Canada, on only six shots. 
So I, I think that does give a pretty accurate representation. In the second half, the U.S. was getting peppered a little bit with crosses, but it wasn't – they weren't allowing these high-quality chances. So if there's one big overarching positive takeaway from the second half and even the, the latter stages of the first half, it's that the U.S. didn't leak high-quality chances. I think that's a good thing. Yep, I'm with you, and I am with you on being more positive. Not that either of us was particularly negative, but I think in a game like this where the United States is expected to win, but they know it's going to be a difficult opponent, they need to win to top the group, uh, but like we don't know if it's going to be the strongest team, we don't know if it will be Canada's strongest team, it is hard with all of that and much, much else to be considered, it's hard to know what is a really good result. And so I think if you look at this game and overall performance in certain ways, you can see it as a negative. I think I'm with you that in watching it again, I think at a certain point, the United States does turn this into a, we have a one nil lead, try to beat us, try to get an equalizer. And then they're making changes from that mentality. And I think in our first watch, I was thinking, this is the U.S. wanting to be dominant, wanting to be uh, ball dominant and aggressive the entire game. And so they failed to do that. And I think once it becomes more of a, well, no, at a certain point they decided not to do that anymore, which I think is kind of the case. It does make it overall better. And then some of the specific things I saw I thought were also better. Yeah, I think I just want to start out with this, I guess. The, the result for the U.S. in this game is good. It's very good. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this on the Quick Take Hot Take. I just want to do it again quickly. The U.S. wins the group. That means if Mexico wins their group, and we'll find that out after we're done recording tonight, whether that happens mm-hmm. or not. But assuming Mexico wins their group, the U.S. will be on the opposite side of the bracket as Mexico for the knockout rounds, which is good because that means the U.S. will not be able to play Mexico until the final. So the U.S.'s quarterfinal game, their next match, which will be next Sunday, a week from today as we're recording now, will, e- will be against either Jamaica or Costa Rica, the runner-up from Group C. So all that stuff, I think, is good. The fact that the U.S. get the result is good. And there there were some nice, positive, somewhat somewhat positive game management things in the second half. Yep. But yes, after the first 30 minutes of this game, I do think it's... Like, we don't need to sugarcoat it, right? The, the, the rest of this game, not that you're doing that, Taylor, but the rest of this game <laughs> was rough. And I think Greg Berhalter certainly agrees with that from what I've been able to surmise in the little snippets of his post-match press conference posted on Twitter. Most people who watched that would watch the U.S play would agree with that and and I know you and I are also in that boat so if we're trying to then get a basic like sort of structure for how this show is going to go based on how the game went I think there's uh two two key things in there Joe the first would be I think I sort of broke this into three distinct sections there's that first I shouldn't say distinct as I say roughly in the next sentence Uh, but (laughs) basically it is that first 30 to 35 minutes uh, of the first half in which the U.S. is dominant then it's the end of the first half when the I think Canada makes some changes the United States has to adjust based on those changes and then the third section would be the second half which is odd to say out loud and I think that's because at that point the United States is more defensive than they had maybe intended to be at the start of the game they changed a little bit I think the second half, but for the most part, I think they're okay with seeing this one out 1-0. But I also think I am more positive because this was the first game that I think Greg Berhalter learned some concrete things. And there's been much consternation about why is this player playing or why is this player not playing or why is this player playing there? And, And I think we saw things in this game that justified why certain players are involved, but I think there was also on an individual level some moments where Greg Berhalter learned what he needed to learn about ball retention or passing ability or defensive tracking. And and I do think we come out of this one knowing more about this team, knowing more about the pool and and fundamentally building towards qualifying for the World Cup and then competing at the World Cup. 
that's what you have to do. You have to be able to know who can play three different positions for you, but who can only do one or two specific things in one position for you. And you know what you're getting out of this player, but you know what you might not be getting out of another player. And I think we had some answers to those types of questions. We'll get into the individuals later on, Joe. Let's start at the beginning in that first section. Uh, What did you see the United States trying to do from the outset, disregarding the fact that they scored in the inside 20 seconds, as I said, Canada (laughs) only, I think, touching the ball with two semi-headed clearances uh, prior to that goal. But overall, what did you think that first 30 minutes was about? So I want to back up even one one layer okay. further from this and talk mm-hmm. about the shape because that okay. really does play into my thoughts on the first section of this game. I agree with your segments as well, Taylor. When the lineup dropped from Greg Berhalter, we, we texted back and forth a little bit and we both thought it was going to be a 3-4-3, right? You had James Sands and he was going to be the center center back. You had the two wing backs, Shaq Moore, Sam Bynes. You had Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson. That made sense as the back five. And then you had... Uh, Jean-Luc Abusio and Cal Acosta as the double pivot, and Leggett and Zardes likely as the two wingers, even though neither one of them are natural wingers. We've seen it already before for the United States, and then DK as the nine. That was my assumption. And then the first goal gets scored, Taylor, and I'm thinking, okay, great, Like, let's actually go back to the action now so we can see what's going on, because there hadn't even been time to really see what the U.S. was doing at that point. You could sort of get a glimpse at Jossie Zardes and DK playing next to each other, but I didn't know if that was a set-piece design off the kickoff or what the deal was with that. So then then everything settles down. The U.S. is up one nothing after Shaq Moore's goal, which was a very nice, well-worked sequence, I think. Then then the U.S. are actually putting together passes, and all of a sudden they're in this 4-4-2 diamond shape. And that very much surprised me because we've never seen the U.S. possess in a 4-4-2 diamond before that then fell back into a 5-3-2 defensive block or in that shape in their press. And at the beginning of this game, I thought it worked out well. Obviously, you get the goal. The U.S. kept the momentum up after scoring early. They pressed and they won the ball over and over again. I think the fifth minute, the sixth minute, almost once per minute after the game had found a little bit of rhythm. They were pressing high, winning it, and then attacking from there. And that stuff was really, really good. And then the possession play was nice as well. They had some nice overloads in midfield. They had a 4v3 or a 4v2 against Canada's 3-4-3 shape that John Herdman had them in at the beginning of this game. And I liked a lot of what I saw in the opening stages of this game. Taylor, what did you think of the first 30 minutes in the United States? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that like for the first 30 minutes, the U.S. were just fun. They were good and they were fun and they were fun in a way that told me they were learning from past mistakes. I think in earlier games of the tournament, they were direct but without as much purpose or without maybe the kind of practice in the rotations to know when to be direct and when not to be. And I thought they were more cautious but still adventurous enough in their passing especially the vertical passing but then they added little things like I was surprised to see Busio who I assumed was going to be sitting in as the number six occasionally being the furthest forward central midfielder and almost being a number 10 and that allowed him to sort of make those runs from deep and find space or pull somebody with him and open up space for somebody else but if he gets that ball in that more advanced position centrally with the wingbacks pushed high with DK and Zardes central and then with Legette arriving late so now there's an option there then Kellen Acosta arriving late and there's another option there and it just was um I think like based on what we've seen before, but then adjusted, adapted, learned from it, we're sort of then getting the next iteration. And I thought it was all pretty proactive and pretty difficult for Canada to deal with. I agree with a lot of the things you said there, Taylor, and the tactics nerd in me 
really mm-hmm. wanted to see this 4-4-2 diamond shape work, right? You mentioned Buzio stepping forward, and that was usually accompanied with Sand stepping forward out of the back line to play the number six role. Then he'd shift back to be the center center back, and it was yeah. this pulley system in the middle of yep. the field where the players would move together. And I liked that a lot. And I thought I was already kind of dreaming of this piece I was going to write if the 4-4-2 was just playing Canada off the field after the opening goal. And there were some good things in the 4-4-2, but I, I don't want to be Johnny Raincloud here. But I also saw a lot of hopeful crosses into the box mm-hmm. for Daryl DK and Jossie Zardes. And I, yeah. it looked to me, once the U.S. had reached the final third, it looked to me like this is a group that hasn't spent a lot of time in a 4-4-2 diamond or in a two-forward front because it lacked the wingers consistently making runs into the main city zone. And it lacked just really confident a chance creation in the final third. And so that was my big knock against this shape. And I, I think it showed that they haven't used a two forward front before. And I'd be a little surprised if they went back to it. But uh, yeah, the tactics, the tactics nerd in me really wanted to see this shape work uh, just a little bit better than it did. And I'm glad you, you, you went back to spotlight Sands stepping out and that allows Busio to push forward for two reasons. The first would be that it's another example to me of how this system is progressing from what we've seen previously because even the move to the back three that we talked about with the last game, it, is, it essentially allows the United States to set up by bypassing some of the normal things of if you're in a, in a kind of 4-3-3 with a low number six, if that number six is going to drop between the center backs and then you're going to have those fullbacks push on. That means your two hybrid number eights are going to drop a little bit deeper. That brings the forwards back. But if you start in that back three with essentially the six already between the center backs in James Sands, then your build position is with like everybody spread where they need to be. You're further up the field and now you attack from there. And to me, the next step is to basically facilitate what would happen a few steps later on in previous teams. I hope this still makes sense, which is that if it were, say, Jackson Ewell dropping in to be almost the third center back, then once the United States gets possession and then once they move the ball forward, then we would see Jackson Ewell move move further up the pitch. And here, what I thought is interesting, if you're starting in a more advanced position with that back three and then Busio goes and Sands steps out, you now have central cover further up the pitch. You can commit those numbers there, but you still have that level of security. And I think it really did cause Canada problems because they were kind of immediately under the press or immediately had numbers around them. They didn't have time to pick out passes. They didn't have time to pick out long balls. And even when they would hit those balls long, the forwards weren't really in a good position to be able to handle them or bring them down or control them. And the U.S. usually got possession back. And I thought all of those wrinkles worked really well. I almost feel like I'm sure Canada and John Herdman would have made changes just because they had to, but Ayoak and Yola having to come out, I think, was a big factor because I think it, it changed the shape for Canada. It put them into one with which they were more familiar and I think let them do some things that started to cause the United States problems. That's my read on where we had that sort of shift in the momentum, shift in the overall game around the 30th minute, Joe. Uh, so let, let's go to that point. Are you good with that? Absolutely. I, I'm with you. The shift was the water break, right? The hydration break in the first half. It's after yep, Daryl exactly. DK almost goes on his one-man breakaway, and, and he, he's, it's just mm-hmm. him versus Kamal Miller. It's an old Orlando City battle, and uh, Kamal Miller wins it, and then we go to hydration break. After that break, so Jonathan Osorio's come in for Io Akinola at this point mm-hmm. after Akinola goes off. Uh, to this point, I should say, in the in the game, Osorio was floating in midfield, and it looked like a 3-5-2 after Canada had started in a 3-4-3. 
I realized on rewatch after the hydration break, John Herdman had him in a four four two, and the four four two stuck right? for Canada. Yeah, for the rest of the game. So it was Osorio on the left, Tejon Buchanan on the right, Alistair Johnson who had been playing right center back, mm-hmm. then shifting to right back, and so you had all those rotations there. And Canada just looked a lot more comfortable in that shape. They started to pin the U.S. back. We talked about that in our quick take, hot take. The U.S. just couldn't break out and and get into transition. They struggled to find the balance of defending deep and compact with also having aggressive runners forward. They couldn't move as a unit. DK and Zardes, I don't think, could hold up the ball, really, against Vittoria or Kamal Miller. They were losing those duels. The U.S. in general lost the duels battle in this game, 40-42 to to Canada. So there was just a whole mess of problems for the U.S., compounded with maybe an unfamiliar defensive block shape. And Canada started to make things happen, again, not creating a ton of high-quality chances, but the tides had well and truly turned at that point in the game. So I'm really excited you brought up the 4-4-2 shift because uh, I, it took me a really long time to believe that was happening and it still sort of looked like a back three at times, but I think that was sure, part sure. of the approach. So I'm excited to talk about that and why it caused the U.S. problems. But first, let's take a break. Let's cool down for a moment, Joe, and hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, we are back. When last we left you, we were discussing that uh, formation change after the hydration break for Canada. And Joe, I think you're absolutely right in the overall shape of what it did, but it's also what it did to the United States that I think is so important. Because here, when you now have those sort of wide midfielders, Osorio does come more central on occasion if the uh, basically if there's possession or if he thinks he can create an overload. But aside from that, if you've got two wide sort of midfielder attackers and then you've got two wide fullbacks, what that tends to mean is that the United States in their defensive shape are going to have their wingbacks drop a little bit deeper, be a little bit more defensive. And now you've pinned back those those sort of wide outlets. And simultaneously, when you go with a front two against a back three, conventional wisdom is you don't want to leave your center backs in a 1v1 scenario or a 2v2, I guess, would be more apt. So I think James Sands gets less adventurous and starts to sit deeper to keep it as a 3v2 in the middle. But now you've got five players staying deeper than they had been to start. And one of those players who is so important to what the United States wanted to do in the attack by stepping out and letting everybody else move forward, now he is 10 to 15 yards deeper. And obviously that means Busio is going to start sitting deeper. But for those initial 5 to 10 minutes, and the reason why I think the momentum changes so much, is that it takes the U.S. a minute to realize this has happened. And in those couple minutes, you keep getting Busio running forward and being this very advanced attacker... He keeps being joined by Legette and Acosta, but nobody else is really stepping up from that back line, I think understandably so, so that when Osorio does drift central and receive a ball, he can turn and really he has nobody within 15 yards of him. And once that happens a few times, I think the U.S. realize something is happening here and we've got to adjust. And I think the way they adjust is to go more defensive. 
Greg Berhalter was on the U.S. Soccer Podcast with Bobby Warshaw a while mm-hmm. ago, before this tournament started. And he's actually been on there a couple times. I definitely recommend going and listening to those interviews. Bobby does a great job. One thing that I, I took away from his first conversation with Bobby is, is Berhalter talking about because there's so little time to train this U.S. team, and that's true for international soccer in general, because there's so little time that he has to, to work with this group and any group, he has to prioritize the phases of play he works on. And so by phase of play, I mean possession or defending in a block or high pressing or, or attacking transition, defensive transition, all those kinds of things. It looked to me in this game like the U.S. had not drilled attacking transition. And ha- they hadn't worked on that phase. They hadn't worked on, okay, we're defending in a block, we're going to win the ball, and then we're going to counterattack, right? It just looked disjointed. It looked disconnected. I think that, for me, is the biggest issue I had with the U.S. in this game, more so than their defensive struggles. And there were struggles. Is just the U.S.'s inability to attack as a group. Taylor, you're talking about Busio being here and the midfield three being there and, and just it looking disconnected. It looked to me like Berhalter had set up this team in training before the tournament and said, okay, we're going to control the ball against Haiti. We're going to control the ball against Martinique. And we're probably going to control the ball against Canada. Let's work on our possession concepts. Let's work on our rotations. And it hasn't always looked sharp, but we've seen some good things there. And we saw some good things there in this game. But I don't think we saw quality attacking transition movements from the U.S. And that was a problem at the end of the first half. They couldn't get out. That was a problem almost all of the second half. The U.S. really couldn't get forward a whole lot and actually break and cause Canada any real problems. So us talking about this this disjointed U.S. team as they're trying to transition, it did make me think back to that interview because I, I, I think that's what happened to this U.S. team is maybe maybe they just didn't work on this phase of play a whole lot before the Gold Cup. Do you, does that trouble you? Because to me, they worked on other phases of attacking play. So I think I'm less concerned about it because it feels like this was them like basically this specific scenario of we're up 1-0, our opponent needs to get a result, we don't need to commit numbers, we can then be slightly more reactive and not try to be on the front foot. And I I don't necessarily love that approach, but I'm not really trying to debate that. What I'm asking you, I guess, is are you then okay with the United States maybe not being in as familiar a position when it comes to transitioning into attack because they haven't worked on that, but instead almost deliberately going into reactive mode. I'm fine with this team not prioritizing attacking transition play, but I think they were way too reactive in this mm-hmm. game. I think when you you let Canada be the protagonist for 60 minutes, you're playing with fire. And the U.S. was very fortunate not to get burned. They, they did well in last-ditch defensive moments. Miles Robinson, yes, he got burned in the first half, but had some really nice plays, uh, especially one on Tejon Buchanan in second-half stoppage time. Just individual defensive plays where the U.S. did come out on top, and there were some fine moments there. But I just I wasn't really comfortable watching this team defend for 60 minutes when it looked like they... It just that wasn't the intention coming into this game. And, and so the fact that it was such a stark contrast from minute 30 or minute 35 to the rest of this game, that that worried me a little bit. And I'd be hesitant to say, OK, the U.S. is just trying to defend that one nil lead. I think they wanted more. They just couldn't figure out how to get more. All right. Let me let me throw an idea at you. And it's genuinely a like thing I came up with on this rewatch. And I am not sure if I really feel comfortable saying, like, this is what happened. So I, I want to throw out a theory, Joe, and then feel okay. free to reject it hard if you want. <laughs> okay. But I was, like, like not sure about the 4-4-2. We've agreed on the 4-4-2. I wasn't sure if it was the Busio sort of adjustment that changed things up for the U.S., and I think we agree on that. So now we'll see if we agree on this, which is that I am 
sort of okay with the United States not trying to like wrestle back control of this game until maybe later on, because I think there's an argument to be made that Canada needing a win and trying to basically be aggressive in their approach more than they would have been otherwise is a more realistic idea of what the United States will be facing if they do qualify for the World Cup. If they're playing stronger opponents in friendlies or in qualifying or whatever it might be, there are going to be games in which the United States is playing a stronger team from the outset, and it's how you adjust to what they're doing and how you then sort of stop what they're throwing at you and improvise the way to do that. And sometimes that's learned, sometimes it's like practiced and you've watched the footage and you know what they're going to try to do. And so you have defensive plan A, B, and C, but maybe you don't have plan D and that's when you've got to try to figure out what the opponent is doing, make your adjustments, make your substitutions. And I think what I'm arguing is that there's a chance that's what Burhalter did here, that at a certain point he decides... I don't need to keep pushing and try to reassert dominance in this game. I am okay with reacting to what Canada do and then sort of seeing how that plays out and then making our adjustments to try to maybe catch them in their own trap or negate what they did. And I think we go back to your very first point, Joe, which is XG not particularly high for Canada, not a ton of clear-cut scoring chances. So if you see it from that lens, and I'm not saying we have to, but if you do – then suddenly it's the United States get a 1-0 win after going up early. They lose a, a key player in Walker Zimmerman to an injury. Canada make adjustments, and from there it's the U.S. sort of trying to nullify those adjustments and effectively doing so because it ends 1-0. It is a more positive game than I think, and that's where I come in being a bit more positive. So that's my kind of rambling theory explanation, Joe. I leave it to you to determine if that is in any way uh, intelligent or understandable. So it is, it's understandable, and there are intelligent aspects of it. Like, there are things in, that you said, Taylor, <laughs> there that I agree with. There are intelligent aspects of it, is my but, but, but that's a good title. I think you should work with that. Um, I will. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think you pull that out against Canada, though, right? Especially not this Canada team. Berhalter should want to dominate these games. He should want to control the ball and create chances with the ball. That's his whole MO, right? And so seeing the U.S. defend this much just feels so unnatural to me and and watching them defend and watching some of the individual breakdowns and some of the systemic structural breakdowns it makes me very suspicious that this was planned from from minute 1 or from minute 30 yeah, yeah. whenever the, the sure. change happened it it feels to me like the US just couldn't figure out what to do like they got hit in the mouth and they couldn't figure out how to hit back and so then maybe at a certain point you do say, okay, we're, we're just going to hang here and hope for the best. And, and it worked out for the U.S. in that way. They get the important result. I just think – I think you try to simulate a, a World Cup kind of game or a, or a game against Mexico against Mexico, right? I think we saw that in the Nations League final where the U.S. changed their approach. They defended a lot in that game. They didn't look super great with the ball and they, they were under a lot of heat for most of that match. But they come out on top. I think you train that sort of stuff – in those kinds of games, I don't think you really want to be drilling that against Mexico. But I don't know. That's just my two cents. Maybe at a certain point, Peralta did say, you know what, guys, pack it in. Let's do what we can and, and we'll call it a day. I think, well, I think maybe maybe I've, I've explained it poorly because I'm not saying it's necessarily guys pack it in and we'll just bunker and defend. But I think there's a point at which Canada have figured out the United States. And I think, honestly, they went back and watched that first game against Haiti and – 
in the final 15 minutes, I think it was, the U.S. goes to basically this exact shape. It's a 5-3-2. It might even be DK and Zardes. I can't remember, but I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing several times in those final 15, I don't like this shape because it's really easy to pin the wingbacks back. And once you do that, there's an over-reliance on going long to DK and Zardes, and I don't think that puts them in the best position, and it changes what you're trying to do. And so I think for Canada to basically make the adjustment, learning from that game, seeing what made the U.S. uncomfortable, and essentially putting them in that same position, and then Berhalter having to make adjustments to get out of that, I think that's where I'm okay with, at a certain point, him saying, you know what, like, I am now, like, in the reactive role, I am okay with staying here if it means that we see this game out 1-0, but I think the the big thing you said that sways me back towards, like, maybe that's not great, is just that that's not great, that shouldn't be the case, I think, against Canada, I think the goal there would be to be, how do you sort of nullify that change, but keep like the philosophy of the approach the same so that you're not having this big jump in what's like overall the flow of the game. Because when you go up one nil early, I think it, it has an impact for both the team that scored and the team that's been scored upon. It, it's, it's, it's stunning. It really does stun you if you're the team that concedes that early and it's embarrassing. And there can be a, a rash response where you get too aggressive and you try to make up for it because you're a little bit embarrassed. And that, ends up being bad for you. And I think Canada weathered that. And for the U S there can be a sort of like, are they just terrible? Can we get five goals? Like you could go that route. You could be more conservative. And then you add in the injuries that we've already talked about. And I think it explains why things got so disjointed, but it doesn't ever really get back to that level of dominance and attacking play that I would have liked to see for the U S. So Joe, then why are you more positive? Do you think overall? Well, just it just goes back to that expected goals point. And yeah, you know, taking single game XG as gospel is not a good idea, and I don't mm-hmm. recommend doing that. But you could just see in this game, the U.S. were under fire, and they they couldn't figure out how to get out of that fire. And so that is a problem, and a problem that we've talked about, and I'm sure but what, we'll talk but about what, more. But what do you mean when you say fire, though? Because, like, again, we're talking about a Canada team that didn't really get that many chances. So what is, like, I'm not disagreeing. I'm actually asking, like, what does sure. fire look like? What's the concerning, the red flags for you? <laughs> so I guess... I wish I knew more about volcanoes so I could use this as an analogy, but I'm just going <laughs> to pretend like I do. Um, yeah. I, I imagine when the volcano first starts erupting, uh, it's hot, right? And there's hot stuff coming out of it. And yeah, you get, uh, it's you burning, get boiled alive it's burning people. Or you get melted. Yeah. That's how it works. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yep. But in the opening stages, maybe only some people are getting you know, burned alive. Yeah, that's probably melted. true. That's probably and true. I think for the U.S., they were under pressure from Canada. In, in When I say that, I mean Canada had the ball and they were moving it forward easily in the second half, mm-hmm. especially in pinning the U.S. back. So that's the beginning of the volcano and, and people are starting to die. And this is such a morbid analogy. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm going to keep at it, though. Um, yep. so, it. so then the volcano yep. keeps erupting more in, in a really unfortunate Pompeii situation. And everybody ends up uh, with lava all over them and dead at the end of the day. That didn't happen. That last bit didn't happen for the U.S. They managed to create some sort of shield where they were getting a little hot, a little toasty, but they weren't totally engulfed by the flames and by the hot lava. And in the shield is they had enough numbers centrally to force Canada wide and just hope that Canada's crosses from wide areas mm-hmm. weren't going to find Lucas Cavallini or weren't going to find Kyle Aaron when he was in or Io Akinola early on in this game. They funneled the ball wide, even though they got played through in the middle over and over again. A better team probably does find a goal in here somewhere. But the U.S. did manage to do enough to force Canada wide, even after getting beaten in individual matchups and systemic matchups, to avoid being fully burned. So the volcano had finished erupting, 
and the final whistle blew and the U.S. is still there and they managed to get this result. So that's that's what I mean, Taylor. Under pressure, under fire, but never fully engulfed by the flames, engulfed by the lava. I'm pretty sure you don't get engulfed by lava, but you get the point. I do. I do. And honestly, then like that does sort of like like it moves me back from where I was, which is like, OK, if the U.S. is adjusting to what Canada are doing and they're willing to let Canada take control and react to it and nullify that and frustrate and see the game out. If we're not saying that was the case, then you have to walk that back and look at it again and think, OK, so then this is the United States when they do make adjustments, when they do make changes they're not the type of change that simultaneously stops what what your opponent is doing, but also puts you in a more advantageous position. And that is what the best managers and teams in the world do. When your your opponent switches so that there's an overload on your left side, you make adjustments that counteract that, but also then accentuate the vulnerabilities that they've presented. It's why you want your opponent to be the first one to change, because once they're changing what they're doing, you have the upper hand because you can then react to them basically trying to get up the high ground. You have the high ground at that point, uh, and then you can uh, do to them what was done to Anakin Skywalker. But if you <laughs> let them <laughs> retake the high ground, which I think is sort of what the United <laughs> States did, now you have to – it's almost a, a, a non-soccer tactics double pivot because not only are you pivoting from like, okay, they've made a change. We still have the high ground. We can react to it, but you also no longer have the high ground. So you're reacting to them but from a more vulnerable position. And again, I think psychologically, that's just a much harder hole to get out of. And I think it does explain then why the U.S. couldn't quite do that in the second half. And again, the second half starts and the U.S. just struggle with the ball. Because we've been talking about defending and how they try to adjust and how, where they push the ball and how Canada got some of their low-quality chances. But the second half starts, and this is another reason why I just think the U.S. couldn't quite execute their approach. They were trying to be ball dominant. But the second half starts, Donovan Pines turns the ball over on the first possession, gives the ball right to Kyle Lahren, yep. Canada get a shot. Then right after the U.S. get the ball back, Matt Turner is holding it in his hands. The next possession, James Sands tries to break lines or tries to play a forward ball. It gets cut out. Then Busio gets the ball back on the left sideline, loses the ball. Five minutes later, Shaq Moore loses the ball high up the field. Then you've got that Donovan Pines turnover that leads to the Cavalini drive that then Pines recovers, and, and that's a whole mess. Watching Donovan Pines on the ball was a bit nerve-wracking in this game. Leggett turns the ball over later in that same minute. That stuff just can't happen, right? It, it mm. makes your defensive work as a unit look bad when you're turning the ball over in simple situations, or if not simple, just needless turnovers in, in the second half of the United States. It makes it really hard to go out there and try to break teams down, try to yeah. break Canada down. When there was space to be had, when you're not even giving your attack a chance to develop and to actually grow and move high up the field as a unit. So, I mean, man, there's just yeah, there's another know, issue there as well. I want, I want to move us along, but I think, Joe, like, again, I enjoy these types of conversations where I have, like, ideas and we sort of work them out live because then I can sort of, like, get my head around it. And I think the way you've described that helps me understand like more clearly what happened in the second half and the analogy I would use, Joe, I don't think this will relate to you because you strike me as very organized. But for those of us who are not, it reminds me of a scenario in which you're trying to leave the house and you're trying to get out the door. You're still on time. You're not quite late. But then you're like, oh, wait, hold on. I can't find my wallet. And then it takes you a couple minutes. And then once you found your wallet, oh, wait, I need I needed to remember to bring that one thing. And like, oh, I wanted to. And, then, and like, it's just if you have to keep resetting and keep remembering that one last thing and oh, I need to feed the dogs before I go. 
it just stops you from getting into that rhythm of getting out the door, getting on with the day. And I think for the U.S., if you have an errant pass and then a miscontrolled pass and then somebody dribbles out of bounds and somebody gives it away and somebody concedes a foul, you're just never able to get into that rhythm of, oh, the ball goes there, I go here, and you just sort of know how it is. And and I've had those moments in games, and obviously not at that level, but it's like, if you think, okay, we know we're attacking down that side, okay, the ball's gotten out there, I'm going to make this 30-yard sprint into where I need to be, and you make that run, and as you're making that run, the play breaks down, you're going to be less inclined to make that run, or you're not going to make it as automatically, because if the ball doesn't come automatically, why would you still be on your game as much, versus why wouldn't you learn from it, stay a little bit deeper just in case you lose the ball. Once everybody starts waiting one and two seconds to make that run or instead of it being a 30-yard sprint it's a 20-yard sprint it's just all those little changes and adjustments and like basically pushes towards staying back staying further back staying more defensive having a more defensive mindset it permeates and it makes it really hard to get back into this proactive attacking soccer that i think the united states utilized in that first half and if you're Canada, you eat that stuff up, right? Yep. In this, in the illustration you made of, of leaving the house, for some reason, Canada is a random person who just doesn't want you to leave your house. And so they're <laughs> thrilled. I don't know why yeah. that would be the case, but they're <laughs> thrilled that you, that you need to go back and feed the dogs. They're thrilled mm-hmm. that you forgot your wallet and you cannot find it for the life of you. That's exactly what they wanted. It allowed them to sustain pressure high up the field in that 442. And exposed the U.S. a little bit to start the volcano erupting. And the U.S. escaped, again, from actually dying in the volcano. But it allows you to expose Jean-Luc Abusio <laughs> a little bit. It allows you to yep. pull him out. Canada had these patterns. They kept running either uh, a left back or a left mid or a left central midfielder, Piet, or, or whoever. They kept running them from inside to outside and dragging Kellen Acosta, the, the, shoot, the right center mid for the U.S. They kept mm-hmm. dragging Acosta out wide leaving Busio isolated in midfield. And Busio got burned by Samuel Piet. He got burned and, and passed over a, a number of different times. And Canada kept attacking the little pockets of space between Busio and Sebastian Legette on the left side. And they essentially forced Burhalter to make a change, not only in personnel, to give the U.S. maybe some more uh, more of a veteran presence in central midfield with Jackson Ewell coming in and, and partnering him with Sebastian Legette. So shifting him and Ewell into a double pivot and then changing the overall shape to a 3-4-3. Canada forced the U.S. to do that, to get that veteran know-how in there, to settle things down a little bit. And then also, they forced the U.S. to change shape just because they had been exposing Busio so much. They'd been isolating him. So you pair him with, with just one other player instead of two. And the gap then between, or the, the gap then between the six, which was Yule instead of Busio, but the six and the eight was narrower for the U.S. than it was when there's three mids in there and Acosta's getting pulled all over and Legette's a little bit too wide on the weak side and Busio can't really keep up with things. So they, they forced Peralter into these changes that I think mm-hmm. came too late, but everything just played into Canada's hands in the second half. The late changes, the forgetting to leave the house, the volcano, it just, it just all really was going <laughs> Canada's way. It was, but it didn't end up Canada's way. We'll talk about the end of the game. We'll talk about some individual performers as well as where we go from here. First, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light as air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Welcome back, Joe. I wanted to talk about that that last point you made there, and then we should probably talk about some individual performances. But with that change to the sort of 3-4-3 that we did see against Martinique that we saw at the end of this game, I was pretty excited for that one because that felt like a more logical approach for reasons we've already outlined. But it also seemed like one that would cause Canada problems, Hoppy being a, a striker, but then dropping in and being a left-sided like central midfielder like we saw. I figured that would create confusion for Canada and make them sort of have to figure some things out and take the momentum off. But I think when the U.S. had already shifted into such a defensive mindset, or at least a more defensive mindset, you're just not going to have that proactive approach. You're not going to be aggressive in stepping and winning the ball and keeping possession. And and as I already said, if if those runs are a couple seconds later or a few yards less accurate, then if you're Matthew Hoppy coming in and you expect someone to be 20 yards up the field and you turn and they're not there, again, it just it, it, it resonates, it permeates, and then he's not going to make that turn as quickly anymore because he's going to let that player catch up and you have those same breakdowns. So honestly, where I end up is I'm still more positive, and we're going to talk about other reasons why that's the case, uh, but I, I think a, a concern of mine that has come out of this is Greg Berhalter's adjustments in game and how they nullify what the opponent is doing and still put the U.S. in a position to be dominant if that's what they want to be. And I'm not saying he doesn't have that, but it's an area that I think is more clear to me. But again, that can be a positive because knowing the vulnerabilities, knowing the deficiencies can be as important, if not more, as knowing the strengths. Because then you know what you've got to work on. You've got time to do that. You can then look at players that maybe solve some of those problems or are able to do some things that others aren't. And you know more about what you need. And to me, that is only a good thing as we move towards World Cup qualifying. I, I agree with you there, Taylor. I think I think we learned things from this game. And also, just, just as we're moving towards the individuals mm-hmm. portion here, it's a reminder of... The fact that, yes, the in-game tactics are important and the speed at which Peralta makes changes are are important. I think it was too late. I already said that. I think it could have come 15 minutes earlier to make that line change and change up the shape. But the most important part of this whole tournament for the U.S. is finding players who can help the U.S. qualify for the World Cup. And a game like this against the strongest opponent in the group gave us our best chance of identifying some of those players. And I, I think we did, Taylor. I think we did too. And I think like one thing I I made a note of that I would like to do either, maybe not as a show, but even just the two of us, Joe, kind of working it out. I would like to, after we're done with the Gold Cup, assemble a depth chart of like where we think players could be, but also based on what we've seen from them, other areas they fill or areas of need, because I do think there's an importance to versatility. And if you can be a left back, but a left wing back, but also maybe a central midfielder, however that would work, like that does give you a few extra points in the positive column. And I think we could also look at maybe players who have shown some deficiencies and have some clear divisions in that depth chart. Because I think I have more, just a better understanding of some of these players. Like Sam Vines is one who I know gets a lot of criticism. And I think a lot of it is unfair and I still do. But in this game, there were strong moments, and, and I think even the opening goal, it's him getting forward and challenging for a header that he's probably not going to win and doesn't end up winning. But getting in there, being in that position to fight for that ball is what makes the defender uncomfortable. It's why the header goes backwards, and it's why it's another header that's awkwardly cleared, and then the U.S. get possession. I saw that energy and that work rate. I also saw little moments like in the first half, he has a ball played to him, and he is sort of 
trying to backpedal to receive it to then also turn and play it backwards. And he miscontrols. I think he either plays it out of bounds or it goes to a Canadian player. Vine has to then make a defensive play and it goes off of him for a throw in. And Greg Berhalter is facing away from the camera. You can only see his back, but all of his body language, it, it really was, it wasn't angry. It wasn't dismay. It wasn't throwing his hands up in the air. It was very clearly the parental. I'm not mad. I'm I'm just disappointed. And that's very (laughs) much what it was. And that moment is big to me in that depth chart ranking because when you have, as a coach, have that moment of like, ah, oh, come on, man. Like, and it's not even, you should have done better. It's got to be better. It's not the yelling thing. It's just like, if, if I can't rely on you there. And it was just Burhalter's, just the way he was like, ugh, like that broke the play. I feel like that will be remembered. And there were a few of those moments tonight where I saw a player that I've otherwise thought was positive. I saw moments of like, ooh, that first touch wasn't good. That would be a reason why Burhalter wouldn't select that player. I think that was the case for Vines. I think it was the case for Daryl DK. And I tweeted this, that like the run that he goes on where he almost gets to it in the end and there's a defensive misplay in there from Canada, it highlights why we all are so excited about him and why we should be because he's very exciting. He makes good runs. He works really hard. He also seems like a very nice guy, but for purposes of this game, just works hard, (laughs) is a physical presence, but also I think is always an attacking threat. And you can see the way he wants, where he wants the ball to be and how he wants to get into attacking positions early and often. But also in that run, it's a very heavy touch that is almost out of bounds. His second heavy touch to kind of correct and get it back in play takes it into the path of of a defender. And really, he should have lost possession there. But then it's that work rate, that energy makes the defender uncomfortable. And then it's a bad back pass. He goes pursuing that one, can't get to it. And that, again, is all good. But there's also just that lack of precision. There's that, like, just that little shortcoming in his game that he could... I don't know if it's easy to to correct, but he could certainly work on and improve. But again, I like knowing those little areas of improvement versus the ones that make Berhalter look disappointed. I'll carry on with DK for a minute. I also thought he struggled for large stretches of this game. And there were some things that he did well. And Taylor, you've just highlighted maybe a reason to be optimistic about him. But I think his job in this game, especially after the U.S. start to defend a little bit more, was to hold the ball up and help the U.S. progress as a unit. And he just didn't really do that. And Jossie Zardes didn't really do that either. Both of them struggled to win their individual matchups. I, I kind of already talked about this against Kamal Miller and, and Vittoria in the back line for Canada. And those are the matchups that you need to win. If you're playing a two-forward front with with two guys like Zardes and DK, you need them to hold up the ball a little bit. And that just that just didn't happen. So DK, I thought, had a rough game. I was hoping this Canada game in the in this group stage was going to be his coming out party and was going to be him just really leading the line for the US. And I didn't expect this shape, but either way, it wasn't that for him. And I thought that was a bit disappointing. Busio as well, defensively especially, I thought was poor in this game. And it, he was he was poor in moments against Martinique. And that is a cause for concern. It looks like he's moving to Syria anyway. It looks like he's going to Venezia, according to reports that are floating around on Twitter right now. So maybe that gets fixed over there. But but both Busio and DK have clear weaknesses to their games. They might factor in into World Cup qualifying. They might not. Well, DK probably certainly will. Busio may or may not. But either way, I think it's a reminder to be patient with these players. It's a reminder for me more than anything to be patient and not expect everything from these guys all at once. What was the Busio shortcoming for you? Because I think for me, it was positioning on first watch when I watched it again for reasons we've already talked about with him sort of being further forward, but having to get back. I think 
he then looks worse because he doesn't have that cover, but also as the game goes on, I think because he had to cover so much ground and make so many sprints forward and then sprints back, I also think he's more fatigued. So I think I'm willing to let him off the hook a bit more. For you, Joe, was there anything aside from that that you saw that you didn't like? It's just the Piet beating Busio on the dribble clip that Doyle posted mm-hmm. on Twitter. It's in the 64th minute. Piet shouldn't be beating almost anybody on the dribble, and he beats Busio. He beats the U.S.'s number six when the U.S. are in a low block. I just mm-hmm. I struggle with that. James Sands provided good cover for Busio, but those individual yeah. 1v1 defensive duels, you got to win at least some of those, and yeah. Busio doesn't win enough for me. I think, dude, I think that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at with, with the Vines one. It's like there were there were individual mistakes in this game that were minor and certainly will be minor in the grand scheme of things. But I think because there were so many of them in such a strange game, I think it's why it stands out to me more as like, okay, everybody has stuff to work on. And so I think you're you're smart there, Joe, to point out like that specific moment, not because, oh, that same thing happened to him five times and he doesn't know what he's doing. But to your point, you need your number six. You need that sort of like defensive midfielder if that's what he's going to be in that moment. They can't get beat there. You have to have them be rock solid. It's why I continue to praise Matt Turner because it's another game, as I said in the quick take, where when he needs to do things, he does those things well. And he could spill a shot here or push a shot over for a corner. And every time he doesn't but instead holds that ball – it's reliable. You know what you're getting from him. You know what he's going to do. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think more about it. But if Busio gets turned and shouldn't have gotten turned and now there's a shooting opportunity, it stands out because that can't really happen against stronger opposition. And Tyler Adams probably doesn't let that happen. So looking at Tyler, like Gianluca luc Busio and wanting him to be great is fine. But wanting him to be great so much so that you say, like, yeah, he can do what Tyler Adams does right now is Mm. obviously not true. So it's where I think I end up being, again, more positive just because I'm okay knowing what the vulnerabilities and potential weaknesses are. I do. You said the word positive there, so I want to take us to a positive (laughs) note. Um, James Sands, man, we did this exact thing after the Martinique game. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Sands had quite as good of a game today as he did against Martinique. Yeah. But... But I put so much more stock in this game, and I'm so much more encouraged about his performance today than I am against that, than I am relative to that Martinique performance, just because the competition is better. And he's playing uh, against a, Canada, a Canadian team, a Canadian team, mm-hmm. a candidate, oh my gosh, a Canadian team that has just so much more talent than Martinique does. And he's put in a pretty difficult spot. He's playing a hybrid role that, yes, he's played with NYCFC before, but he's got a lot going on. He's playing as a center back, as a center center back when they're defending. He's stepping forward in possession, and he's sometimes doing a little bit of both of those things in possession too. There's just so much going on in the fact that he was a reliable defensive presence with the exception of that one time in the 48th minute, he gets turned by Kyle Lahren and then Canada can attack from there. That was the the one mark, the biggest mark I had against him and maybe a couple errant passes that led to turnovers as a part of the U.S.'s problem in general to advance the ball. But man, he looked like a guy that I would not have a huge issue uh, being on that World Cup qualifying roster as the de facto second number six behind Tyler Adams. Really? Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about the other options here, Taylor, right? Jackson Ewell's been bypassed in the depth chart. We can see that in this tournament. He's been passed over by Gianluca Busio. Yeah. He didn't start in this game. Busio did. Busio has those defensive shortcomings, and I'm not really sure he's a better passer of the ball than James Sands is right now. He's not infinitely more aggressive. He doesn't play infinitely faster. I know we haven't seen Sands play as a six in every phase of the game. Tonight or this afternoon, we just saw him 
as a, a six sometimes, but I think I'd be more comfortable with him starting as a number six than I would Busio or than I would Yule or even Acosta probably as in that group too. The only issue with that is we're probably not going to see it, darn it, because Walker Zimmerman might not be yeah. available for that next game. And so Sands might have to play as a center back in a two instead of as a six or instead of a center center back. And now we're just getting into permutations. But yeah, I'm, I'm team James Sands. Taylor, I'm the president of the fan club, darn it. You know, uh, I my mistake. My of course. I apologize. <laughs> how, did I for- how did I forget that? I think you ended up being the president and also maybe the vice president. So yes, I think that makes sense then that you would say he should start in every position Uh, I liked what I saw from James Sands I liked what I saw from Miles Robinson especially when Zimmerman goes out and the United States does become more more reactive and defensive I think Robinson did a very good job of not having any of those sort of major obvious mistakes that made you think like oh I don't know about that one I'm a little bit nervous over there like I thought he was pretty consistent in that second half and I thought he he read play well he stepped when he needed to for the most part he won it when he needed to for the most part and I thought also made some big plays read sort of 1v1 scenarios well especially as Canada were able to get into the 18 and and I thought I wouldn't. I don't know how I would feel if it was like Sands and Robertson in in a back four, uh, and I think there's a chance we do see that because of the injury to Zimmerman and us knowing not us not knowing how severe that was. But then also, I think Donovan Pines not adding a ton as a third center back. You they might go with him just because of consistency and having that back three. But I think I'm also with you that if it can't be Zimmerman, I wouldn't be surprised to see it be Robertson and Sands as your two center backs in the next game. I'm just scared of it being Pines. That's really the biggest thing yeah. is I, the, the one play, and sure, I didn't take the, the minute down, but it's where Donovan Pines is just praying that the ball is going to go out of bounds instead of him having oh, to move the goodness. ball forward. Like yeah. I've, I've almost never seen a professional soccer player do that. And Donovan Pines did a lot of good things defensively in this game. He comes in and he's making stops in the press and he's stepping and winning the ball. He's making some nice recovery challenges in the second half. But the challenges that he was making sometimes were to fix his own mistakes and were to clean up his own messes. And, mm-hmm. oh, man, I just – I don't think he has much of a future with this group. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess yeah. I'd rather see Sands and Robinson in a four than, than Pine, Sands and Robinson in a three. But who knows? I Like, I think in that moment, I'm glad you brought that one up because as it's rolling – and rolling is a generous term for what it's doing yeah. at a certain point. Like, it's pretty clear it's not going out of bounds. Or if it is, it's going to take way too long. And a team that's being more aggressive is going to charge that down. And, and he does. Doesn't he end up losing it, in fact, in the end? Or at the very least, I, I can't remember. I think, I think Canada able to get a foot to it. But then I think the U.S. win it off of that one. But either way... You've just got to make a choice. And, and it's, it's again, the United States, instead of this ball might go out of bounds, but it might not, I'm clearing it. It might go out of bounds, so I'm going to put my foot on it, stop it, and see if I can find a pass. Like, you, you've got to make a decision. And waiting and waiting and hoping, but also trying to evaluate, suddenly you're doing three things at once, and that's where mistakes happen. So, yeah, I think, like, unless we are in a position where we're saying... We know it's not going to be Donovan Pines going forward after this tournament, but we want to persist with the back three and he's the best option. Then I guess that makes sense. Aside from that, I think it either needs to be the back three we've seen of Robertson, Zimmerman and Sands in the middle, if that's possible. And if not, 
I'm I am okay with a back four, and I didn't think that would be the case when we started recording. But that's how I am now. I liked Matt Turner. Uh, I would not mind seeing Reggie Cannon start the next game. Uh, I thought Jack Moore was fine, and obviously he gets the opening goal, the only goal. Uh, but I still see, especially as the United States is having to be more defensive, he gets beat a couple times in one v ones. He's out of position a few times, and there's even a few moments when he makes a run. I think thinking a ball is going to come in. It doesn't, but he continues that run, and that leaves gaps, and I just think the U.S. is probably a stronger team with Reggie Cannon, and certainly if they do want to persist in a back five or a back three, and it is Donovan Pines, I I do think uh, that maybe there's an argument that Cannon comes into this game to basically be a more solid veteran right back that sort of knows what's happening, has been here before, and can help get Pines through it. And I think that's a thing that he could certainly do in the next game if the situation requires. So that's that's one adjustment, though I don't think Cannon necessarily stood out in a way that Shaq Moore didn't. I just think I'm more comfortable with Reggie Cannon than Shaq Moore as we get to the knockout stage. Uh, Joe, anybody else you wanted the spotlight before we maybe finish up by talking about what we do want to see in the next game? I'm still just confused by Kellen Acosta in this game. Yep. I mentioned how he was getting pulled apart, yep. pulled around in the second half, and that was leaving Busio isolated. And it felt like he would step to pressure the ball, but he would never win it. And I don't really know what was up with that. Maybe it's just a bad game from him. He didn't have a lot to offer in possession either. But again, after the 30th minute, 35th minute, no one on the U.S. team had a whole lot to bring in possession. So I don't think yeah. it was Acosta's best performance, but I'm still a little bit puzzled by his game. Uh, and and one more name for me would be Sebastian Legette, who I shouted out in the quick take, hot take. And, and I kind of stand by that shout out, but also the reason for it, which is that I thought he was quietly good, quietly influential. He becomes the captain when Zimmerman subs off. He gets the assist. And uh, I think in the broadcast, Stu Holden said like, oh, it's a great look from Kellen Acosta. And it is, uh, albeit after he has like two bites at the apple. The third one is a good little lofted pass out wide to Legette. But if you watch that one again, listeners... Sebastian Legette is screaming for that ball for a good five <laughs> seconds before. Like, he is so wide open because DK and Zardes had both drifted over to that side. When they go central, they pull the defenders with them, and now there's a huge gap. But Legette knows well to kind of sit in that space, not give it away until it's really obvious, and then really obvious, and then really obvious, and then he gets it. But I thought Sebastian Legette was was solid, if unremarkable, but to me that's a positive overall. So, Joe, what I think then makes sense, this is at least what makes sense to me, and uh, I'm hoping you're willing to roll with me, is I think like the thing I enjoy about knockout tournaments is as that we progress and get into the knockout round and get more familiarity with teams, and we just experienced this with the Euros, you start to know what to expect from the team. You start to know this formation is working, this one isn't. This tactic or technique is working, and this one isn't. This player hasn't, they haven't been able to figure out how to use him, they've been using this guy. And... In my opinion, tournament play, barring injuries or suspensions, you're supposed to be able to sort of know more and more as you go on. And I think I know more about certain parts of this team and less about others. So if you're down for it, I think we should try to figure out what we think the lineup will be without even taking opponent into consideration and maybe trying to take the present status of the squad into consideration. And that way, I think we can see... Here's where we're confident. Here's what we're not confident in. And then we can see how it contrasts with what Burhalter actually does in the knockout round to know if we are learning things or if Burhalter's trying some things or maybe we're just totally wrong. That, that's my idea for how to uh, conclude this one. I'm in. Let's do it, Taylor. How All do right. we want to do we want to just build the shape from back to front? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I'll take a risk, Joe. I'm, I'm going to say there, it's going to be Matt <laughs> Turner. It. It's going to be Matt Turner and goal. <laughs> 
You're welcome. Uh, I was going to call for the Brad Guzan upset there, but yeah, it will be Matt Turner. I, and I, I think we actually have to build this in two ways because, of course, that has to be complicated. Yep. We have to have a Walker Zimmerman being fit yep. shape, and we have to have a Walker Zimmerman not being fit shape. But either way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the next two gimmies. I think it's going to be Reggie Cannon and Sam Vines as the outside defenders moving up and providing width and attack, which then leaves the two center backs versus three center backs conundrum to you, Taylor, if you want to build those up. So you think no matter what, it's it's Vines and Cannon if it's in a back four or a back five? I do. I think the fact that Cannon comes on in this game, yeah, Shaq Moore is in preseason yeah. uh, in, in Spain. But Cannon is a guy that brought their trust, and I think it is probably pretty even between those two players. So the nod goes to Cannon for me, and I think for you too. It does. Uh, so I think then we, it, it's pretty similar either way because if it is if it is a back five or a back three, I think it's Miles Robinson, I think it's James Sands, and then if it's Zimmerman fit, it's Zimmerman. If it's not... I really do think, based on what we saw from Donovan Pines, I don't see Burhalter like he said he doesn't want this to be a truly experimental team, so I don't see him putting Jackson Ewell in as a center back or having Kellen Acosta sit in. He might do that, but I'm not comfortable saying that's like a thing we've learned that's been demonstrated so we can put that down. So with that in mind, I think it's either that back five, as I said, or I think it's Miles Robinson and James Sands as your two center backs. I agree. And so if... If we continue building forward, mm-hmm. assuming that this three five two four four two diamond shape is not going to come back into the rotation anytime soon, is that which I is think that safe should. to say, Taylor? Yes. Okay. I cool. Three five two. So if we if we set that aside, we're either building out a three four three or a four three three. So that either way, it's very similar. If it's yep. the four at the back shape with Sands and Robinson, and there's no Walker Zimmerman. I do think we probably see Busio again, despite his defensive shortcomings. I think he's jumped over Jackson Ewell in the pecking order. And then after that, we probably see Kellen Acosta and Eric Williamson, or, or maybe Leggett is in there. Either way, Leggett's on the field. I'm just trying to figure out whether he's going to be a narrow winger in the front three or he's going to be a central midfielder. Um, so I guess there's a slight caveat there. If it is the 3-4-3 three, three shape, I think it's Busio and Leggett probably next to each other, Busio and Acosta. Really? I'm not sure it matters a whole lot between those two. Taylor, what do you think? It's strange how, like, I thought the back four probably solved some problems, but really then once you move further forward, it presents them all over again. Because then, yeah, do you trust Gianluca Busio to be your, like, lone pivot in oh, a 4 It could just be Acosta. Yeah. It could, it could just be Acosta as well. I, I think that would be harsh. So I think I'm inclined to say it's probably a, like, if it is that back four, it's a four three three of Busio and Acosta that routinely looks more like a four two three one with Acosta and Busio sort of partnering each other, and then that does sort of confuse things on the attacking side. But I think you're right that then that probably means it's let let Jet is what I was about to call him. It's because I'm writing it down. Lejet as your other midfielder. If it's the three four three, I think. I think I probably would like to see them go. I'm going to go with what I would like to see based on what's worked. And I think I would like to see them go with Busio and Acosta. I'll, I'll round it out. And then go back to what worked against Martinique and see if we can replicate that with a few more reps against a stronger opponent, which means it's Hoppy as your left forward, who's also a left winger and also a left central midfielder. And then it would be Daryl DK as your main forward. And that leaves either Legette or Christian Roldan as your sort of other attacking player there. I think I think I agree with you there, Taylor. I think it just feels weird to me to think that we could see Legit not start. So I'm almost certain that he'll be in here somewhere. If Roldan and Hoppy yeah. and DK or, or maybe Roldan, Hoppy and Zardes is that front three, I'm almost certain that Legit will be somewhere in a three-man midfield or in a two-man midfield. Yeah. Acosta probably 
does start, even though this wasn't a good game for him. Other than that, man, I don't know who will start at the nine. It could be DK. It could be Zardes. Neither one shined in this game. I don't know who will start at the six. I mean, the, these are areas that we're not confident about just because I don't feel like players have differentiated themselves from each other in those spots. And so in some ways, Baralter still hasn't solved his fill-out-the-World-Cup-qualifying roster conundrum. He's still trying to work through that stuff, or at least if I was Greg Baralter, I would still be trying to work through that stuff. But we'll see. I think whoever starts in the knockout game in, in this quarterfinal matchup against Jamaica or Costa Rica, I think we'll learn a lot about how Baralter rates players based on that first-choice 11. I think we're going to learn a lot. I think I think... I feel comfortable now with not knowing, basically, because, like, if we go with that 4-3-3, like, unless you're going to go with a very tight front three, which means, like, your your central midfielders have to be very spread, like, it means he's going back to, like, like players that I don't think will work there. And I think if it's Jonathan Lewis, like, I think we've learned that's not good enough. So then to me, to go back to Jonathan Lewis because you don't have other wingers... Like it, it, it says like, ah, we're going to try this again. And it doesn't feel as natural of a progression. I'm honestly moving towards, it might be a back three, no matter what. And if it's Zimmerman, that's great. And if it's not, it's Donovan Pines and we will have to adjust a little bit. But I, I think at this point with how things have gone, if I were forced to predict, I would say it's a back three, whether or not Walker Zimmerman is there. And then it's a starting 11 that approximates what we saw against Martinique. That would be my sort of like, that feels like we've learned some things from this tournament. We know some of what's working. We know some of what isn't. We have ideas for how we can solve some of that and make other players look better. That that would feel like a natural progression as we go forward, Joe. That's that's where I am. I'm saying 3-4-3 three, three, no matter what. I just want to see James Sands. Man, I don't right. care if it's a 3-4-3 three, three or a 4-3-3, three, three, ideally not a 3-5-2. Just give me <laughs> James Sands, and all of uh, of the members of my James Sands fan club will be happy. All right. All right. I like that. I like that. So I think we, we've learned some things. I do feel better. I do feel excited for the rest of this tournament because yeah. I, I like my final note I will say, and I probably should have said this earlier, is I thought those first 30 minutes were some of the best – like management and play I've seen under Greg Berhalter and from Greg Berhalter. I thought how the United States just made Canada so uncomfortable in so many different positions, didn't let them build, didn't let them get any sort of rhythm or chemistry or connectivity. I I haven't seen that much from the U.S. in recent memory or, or certainly in like iterations of this team in different years and different eras. And, and it made me really excited the second half like, I basically had to write down my sort of like, hey, that was a really good half just in case the second half doesn't make up for it. And it didn't. <laughs> but I'm glad I wrote that down so that my takeaway was first half was so good that I remain excited for what comes next. This team can do fun stuff, right? This team yep. can do fun stuff. And so much of this game was boggy and it, the U.S. was in a funk and it was not well executed play. But yeah, let's let's remember the good stuff. Yep. I, I'll choose to remember the good stuff and also remember the bad stuff, but just, you know, focus on the good stuff. Focused on the good stuff, indeed. All right, Joe Lowry, uh, the plan, uh, such as it is for the rest of this week, <laughs> for the rest of this week, I say on Sunday night, the week hasn't even started. Uh, Jordan Angeli will be with me tomorrow to preview the U.S. women's national team ahead of the Olympics. We may also look at some players and teams that are going to be interesting or exciting for any number of reasons. Uh, then we're going to be doing at least one listener question show this week. Uh, the four of us, Graham and Ryan, will be rejoining. Then Joe and oh, I... Yeah. 
uh, will be breaking down the USA's uh, what qu- a quarter semifinal quarterfinal how does it work quarterfinal yeah, yeah. quarterfinal thank <laughs> quarter you final. Uh, quarterfinal game but that's not till uh, the coming weekend in between we will have a breakdown a detailed review of the USA's Olympic game against Sweden uh, and then we will also have allocation disorder lots and lots of soccer content still to come this week uh, for now Joe Lowry thank you very much for going long to talk all things USA and Canada today you got it taylor listeners thank you all for sticking with us as we figured some things out hopefully we did and hopefully we helped you figure some things out too we will talk to you all again tomorrow but for now have a great night